during the reigns of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed or conquered. It will crush all these kingdoms into nothingness, and God's kingdom will stand forever. Welcome to the end. The Bible gives two crystal clear identifying characteristics of God's people at the end of time, and one of them is going to surprise you. Let's go to Revelation chapter 12 and verse 17. The Bible says in Revelation 12 verse 17, the dragon was wroth or angry with the woman, the woman being a symbol of God's church, the dragon being a symbol of Satan. He, that's the dragon, went to make war with the remnant of her seed. And of course, the remnant, a word that simply means those that remain, obviously, at the end of time. So God's church remaining at the end of time. And then it says this, the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, we understand what it means to keep the commandments of God, but what does it mean to have the testimony of Jesus Christ? What is the Bible referring to here? We need to find out what the Bible teaches on this subject. And to answer this question, we're going to go to Revelation chapter 19, where John does something a little bit unusual. The Bible says in Revelation 19 and verse 10, And I, that's John, fell at his, that is the angel who is explaining the book of Revelation to John. I, John, fell at the angel's feet to worship him. And he said to me, don't do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And so here the Bible clearly tells us in defining language exactly what the testimony of Jesus is. The Bible says that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy and that John's brethren have the testimony of Jesus. Well, we need to ask ourselves the question, what is the spirit of prophecy that John's brethren have along with John? If we go over to Revelation chapter 22, we find that John was a bit of a slow learner and he tries to worship the angel again. And once again, the angel responds in the same way in verse 9. He says, don't do it, for I'm your fellow servant and of your brethren, the prophets. So here we have the brethren have the testimony of Jesus, which is the spirit of prophecy, and the brethren are the prophets. Therefore, the testimony of Jesus is the gift of prophecy. And that's how the Bible came to us. The Bible says that holy men of God, prophets, wrote as they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. Now, what is interesting about this passage in Revelation chapter 12 is that the Bible says that at the end of time, God's people, the remnant, those that remain, have the testimony of Jesus. In other words, they have the gift of prophecy as well. But when we think about the gift of prophecy, we need to ask, what is the gift of prophecy given for? What is its purpose And why did it disappear during the Dark Ages? We, of course, find that the gift of prophecy existed right the way through the Bible. 
It existed in the early church, but where did it go for those long periods of the Dark Ages? And why does the Bible specifically say that it will return just before Jesus comes back? Well, to answer those questions, we're going to go to our Bible and we're going to go to Ephesians. We're going to begin in the book of Ephesians where we're going to find a list of some of the different gifts of the Spirit. And this list is going to tell us what they are given for and how long God intended them to stay with God's church. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11, he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. These are some of the different gifts of the Spirit. Well, why did he give these gifts? The Bible says, for, so here it comes, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. And if you are wondering who the saints are, the saints are anyone who has given their life to Jesus Christ. According to the Bible, if you have given your life to Jesus Christ, then you are a part of the body of Christ and you are a saint just as much as anybody else. And the gift of prophecy, along with all these other gifts, was given to us to build us up spiritually and to perfect us so that we can become like Jesus. It continues on. And in verse 13, it says, it tells us how long God intended these gifts to be with the church. In verse 13, the Bible says, until... We all come in the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of fullness of Jesus Christ. And so we know that God's intention was that these gifts were to remain with his church right the way through until Jesus returns and we are perfected to be exactly like Jesus. Okay, so then we ask ourselves the most puzzling question. What happened to the gift of prophecy during the Dark Ages? And why does the Bible say the gift of prophecy will be returned to God's church at the end of time? To answer this most important question, we're going to look at a principle that is most revealing. It is called the law and the prophets. And the principle basically works like this. God's law, his Ten Commandments, is very, very simple. And if we follow God's law, which is simple, God loves to add to our knowledge through the gift of prophecy. But if we turn away from God's law, which is so simple, then why would God add detail when we're not following that which is already simple? And why would the gift of prophecy be there? We find that when God's people kept God's law, the gift of prophecy was there. And when God's people stopped stopped keeping God's law, the gift of prophecy disappeared. Let's look at some examples. If we go over to Jeremiah chapter 26, beginning in verse 4, the Bible says, And you shall say unto them, Thus says the Lord, If you will not listen to me to walk in my law, which I have set before you, and to listen to the words of my servants, the prophets, whom I sent to you, rising up early and sending them. He goes on, but you have not listened. He says, then I will make this house like Shiloh. In other words, destroyed and make this city a curse to all the nations of the earth. Notice the condition for the prosperity of God's people was two things. First the law and then the prophets 
Combine those together and you have the prosperity of God's people. However, God's people did not keep his law. They did not follow the prophets. And as a result of that, God did destroy their city. And in Jeremiah's next book, he writes about it in Lamentations chapter 2 and verse 9. The Bible says, her gates are sunken into the ground. He has destroyed and broken her bars. Her king and her princes are among the Gentiles. The law is no more. Notice what happens when the law is done away with. Her prophets also find no vision from the Lord. The prosperity for God's people was based on keeping the law and listening to the prophets. When they did away with the law, the prophets ceased to speak. It's a very simple principle and we find it in many places in the Bible. If we simply turn to the next book, Ezekiel. We can go to Ezekiel chapter 7 and verse 26 where the Bible says, Mischief will come upon mischief and rumor upon rumor. Then they will seek a vision from the prophet. But what's the problem? The law shall perish from the priest and counsel from the ancient. When they go looking for that, those words of encouragement from the prophet, there is none. Why? Because the law has disappeared. Another example, we turn over a few more pages to Ezekiel chapter 20. And here, the Bible is even clearer again in verse 3, where it says, Son of man, speak to the elders of Israel, and this is Ezekiel, a prophet, and say unto them, Thus says the Lord God, Have you come to inquire of me? As I live, says the Lord God, I will not be inquired of by you. And so here we find God's people had come to the prophet and they have come to the prophet. We need information from you. And God said, okay, this is the message that you give to them. Give them this message. I have nothing to say to you. Why? What was the problem? What were they doing that God was not speaking to them at this time? He gives us, he tells us about it in verse 12. He says, I gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign between me and them. that They might know that I am the Lord that sanctified them. And then he likens it to the house of Israel who rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes, my judgments, whichever man do them. He even shall live in them. My Sabbaths, they greatly polluted. Then I said, I will pour out my fury upon them in the wilderness to consume them. And so we find a principle. It goes from one end of the Bible to the other. The law and the prophets go together. When you separate the two, the gift of prophecy disappears. And when you study the history of God's church, one of the, the first step in bringing about the dark ages was God's church turning away from God's law, God's law of love, which is a transcript of his character. Now we need to come back to Revelation chapter 12 and verse 17. Because while the first step in bringing about the dark ages was the doing away with God's law, we go to Revelation chapter 17 and we come to God's church, God's people at the very end of time. What does the Bible say right here? The Bible says that God's people at the end of time are defined by two things. The dragon was angry with the woman, the church, went to make war with the remnant, the remaining church which keep the commandments of God, the law, and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Notice when the law is restored, the gift of prophecy is restored right along with it. And that 
is God's method. There are some other things that we need to note about God's method, particularly in relationship to this prophecy about the end of time. You see, when we stop and think about this prophecy here at the end of time, we find that the testimony of Jesus, the gift of prophecy, is being restored. Why would that happen specifically at this time, other than the fact, obviously, that the law has been, has been restored? Well, the answer is quite simple. If we notice God's method, the Bible says that, you know, surely the Lord God does nothing except he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. Whenever God is going to do something big, God always reveals what is big through his prophets. And we can think of examples down through history. When God was going to flood the world, he spoke through Noah. When God was going to bring about the Exodus, he spoke through Moses. When Jesus was going to come the first time, there was a multitude of prophets and John the Baptist in particular. But the greatest event that our earth will ever see is the return of Jesus Christ to this earth. The second coming. Nothing will be bigger than that. And when we stop and think about the second coming, we have to ask ourselves the very simple question. Would God come back to this earth? Would God bring about an event of such magnitude without giving special guidance through the gift of prophecy? And the answer, of course, is no, he wouldn't. That is God's method. But let's look at something more about God's method. Because God doesn't just give prophecies about big events through identifying characteristics. God also gives time prophecies. And time prophecies also have a method to them. I want you to think about some of the great time prophecies that we find in the Bible. There's a time prophecy given to Abraham that his descendants would go into captivity in Egypt for 400 years. And then at the end of that prophecy, you have Moses who guides God's people through the fulfillment of that prophecy. And right there, we have an example of God's method. When God gives a time prophecy, there is a prophet who initiates the prophecy and another prophet who comes at the end to give special guidance for the fulfillment of that prophecy. Let's consider a number of other examples. When God's people were going to go into Babylonian captivity, Jeremiah and Ezekiel gave prophetic guidance at the beginning, but Jeremiah gave a time prophecy, 70 years of captivity. Jeremiah initiates the prophecy, Zechariah and Haggai come at the end to give prophetic guidance at the end of that prophecy. In the book of Daniel, which was written during the captivity, we find a prophecy of 70 weeks. 490 years or 483 years to the Messiah. Daniel initiates the prophecy and John the Baptist comes to give prophetic guidance at the completion or the fulfillment of that prophecy. And here is what is most interesting. You see, right there in the book of Daniel, you have the longest time prophecy found anywhere in Scripture. It's a time prophecy that begins way back in 457 BC. 
and extends for 2,300 years, ending in modern history, 1844. It's a prophecy that Daniel gives as a time, a date for the beginning of the judgment. And the question that has to go through our minds is very simply this. If Daniel has given a time prophecy here, if he has initiated a prophecy, then who is the prophet that gives guidance at the end of time at the fulfillment of that prophecy in 1844? Well, if you study your history, you're going to find that you really only have one person who lays a legitimate claim to being the prophet to give guidance at the end of Daniel's time prophecy. And that was a woman by the name of Ellen White. Now you might say, well, that's a rather big statement to stand up there and say, well, I think that Ellen White was a prophet. And I'm not expecting you to take that just on my say-so. That would be foolish indeed. You need to do your own investigation and look for yourself. But I've done some serious investigation into this and I've looked up every objection that has ever been raised against Ellen White and found that I can't find any that actually hold water when you look at the evidence as it exists. But once again, it's a big claim. Of course, there are many people in our world today, particularly within Christianity and particularly amongst our charismatic friends, who will claim to have the gift of prophecy. However, out of all of the gifts of the Spirit, what you're going to find is this. The gift of prophecy is listed in the Bible as by far the most important of all of the gifts of the Spirit. You see, in the Bible you can find many places where the Bible talks about the gift of elders, pastors, Bishops, they're all the same thing in the Bible. And you can find that they're mentioned in the Bible, I think, around about 200 times. Apostles are mentioned 82 times. Teachers are mentioned 268 times. The gift of tongues is mentioned in five different places. And the gift of prophecy, wait for it, is mentioned 530 times in the Bible. This is the most major and important gift of all of the gifts of the Spirit, and Paul says so himself. And so anybody claiming to have this gift must be put to the most stringent tests. We're going to take a moment to look at the tests of a prophet. You can't take my word for it. I can't take your word for it on anyone who claims to have the gift of prophecy. First, they must be put to the tests that the Bible gives. And the first one is found in Isaiah chapter 8. Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 20, where the Bible says, to the law and the testimony. The testimony, of course, the gift of prophecy. Notice how that the law and the gift of prophecy always go hand in hand in the Bible. To the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. There's a very simple test. Anybody claiming to have the gift of prophecy must be brought to the acid test of God's word. 
if they are contradicting the Bible in any place, if they are speaking anywhere against God's law, the Ten Commandments, the Bible says they are a false prophet. Well, what else does the Bible have to say on this subject, which is so important? Let's go over to Jeremiah, and I guess this one is probably the most obvious of all of the gifts of the prophets, or all of the tests of the prophets. Jeremiah chapter 28 and verse 9, the Bible says, The prophet which prophesies of peace, when the word of that prophet comes to pass, in other words, when it actually happens, then shall the prophet be known that the Lord has truly sent him. In other words, if somebody comes along and makes a prophecy, and that prophecy does not take place, then clearly we know that we are dealing with a false prophet. Another one of the tests is found in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 20. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 20. The Bible says very simply, by their fruits you will know them. What is the fruit of their life? Do they live a life of self-sacrificing love like Jesus did? Or do they live a life of lavish luxury and wealth? You know, as Christians, we have been too gullible for too long. It's time we woke up and saw what the Bible actually says and bring people who claim to have the gift of prophecy to the acid test of God's word. What else does the Bible say? Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 18. We're going to start reading in verse 9. The Bible says, When you have come into the land which the Lord your God gives you, you will not learn to do after the abominations of those nations. There will not be found among you anyone that makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire or that uses divination or an observer of times or an enchanter or a witch or a charmer or a consulter with familiar spirits or a wizard or a necromancer. For all that do these things are an abomination under the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God has driven them out from before you. Very simply, we could summarize by saying anybody who has claimed to be speaking or to be in contact with the dead, doesn't matter who it is, Mary or anybody else, anyone who claims to have contact with the dead, the Bible says is a false prophet. The Bible upholds the highest standard for anyone claiming to have the gift of prophecy. Now, I know many of you are asking some questions and saying, well, I've never heard of Ellen White and I've never really read what she has written and I'd encourage you to get out there and do so. Some excellent books that we can make available to you. Uh, the Great Controversy, which covers the history of the last 2,000 years of Christianity right up to our time and into the future. The Desire of Ages, which is classed by many as the greatest book ever written on the life of Christ. Or Steps to Christ, a beautiful little book that is all about how to grow closer to Jesus Christ. Those are probably my three favorites right there, and I would recommend them highly. But what about some of the other things that she said? She had some interesting insights, and I've got time to just share a few with you here this evening. First of all, way back in 1869, she spoke about electrical currents in the brain. She actually wrote a lot about health 
And you've got to remember that back in the 1860s, they hadn't even yet learned about hand washing. We've been doing a lot of that these days, haven't we? And everything that Ellen White spoke about in relationship to health has since been confirmed. Of course, those electrical charges weren't officially discovered until 1934. Back in 1864, she spoke about tobacco as a poisonous, a poison of the most deceitful and malignant kind. It wasn't until a 100 years later that the Surgeon General of the United States eventually put out a report to state that, yes, tobacco would kill you and that it was poison. She spoke about the United States as being the last great superpower in the world. And this was in a time period when the United States was still fighting armed battles and conflicts with the Native American population and on occasions losing to people who were using more primitive weapons than they owned. Certainly not a world superpower by any stretch of the imagination. She talked about, she spoke about the United States forming an alliance with the Vatican. And of course, that did not take place during her time. All diplomatic ties with the Vatican had been broken because the uh, Vatican had written certain uh, encyclical letters and specific name specific errors based on the United States Constitution. But she said, no, they are going to form a very, very close alliance to work together at the end of time. And of course, we saw that begin under Ronald Reagan and how it has continued since then. She spoke about the wall of separation in the United States being torn down, and we've seen that happen over and over and over again. She described the church at the end of time as every uncouth thing demonstrated, shouting and drums and dancings, the senses of rational beings become so confused they cannot be trusted to make right decisions, and this is called the moving of the Holy Spirit. This was back when people were generally very quiet when they went to church. But we see this in some of the large gatherings that take place today. She spoke about disease in animals and that disease crossing over and infecting human beings. And in 1902, she spoke about disease in animals is increasing in proportion to the increase of wickedness among men. The whole animal creation will groan under the diseases that curse our earth. And it's interesting to note, if you look at the last great 12 pandemics, they have all come to human beings from animals. And as a result of eating animals, that both the Bible and Ellen White, interestingly enough, said that we should not be eating. She spoke about uh, genetic engineering back in 1864 and the base crime of the amalgamation of man and beast. But what is most important is what she said about the Bible and about Jesus Christ. In the book Great Controversy, she said this statement, Antichrist is to perform his marvelous works in our sight. So closely will the counterfeit resemble the true that it will be impossible to distinguish between them except by the Holy Scriptures, by their testimony, Every statement and every miracle must be tested. And this is one thing I love about Ellen White's ministry. 
over and over and over again. She pointed to Jesus Christ and she pointed to the Bible. Finally, she said this, There are thousands today, and by this, the way, this comes from Desire of Ages, page 175. There are thousands today who need to learn the same truth that was taught to Nicodemus by the uplifted serpent. When they are bidden to look to Jesus and believe that he saves them solely through his grace, they exclaim, how can these things be? Here is a tremendous author, a woman living in the 1800s who founded one of the world's largest private hospital systems, one of the world's largest private educational systems, who did so much, who wrote so much. And I would encourage you to not just look at her accomplishments in this world, but to look at what she wrote about Jesus Christ and what she wrote about the Bible. And as she encouraged us to do, to turn your attention on Jesus and to focus on him, to be changed, to be formed into his image, to become more like Jesus and to be ready for his soon return. We are so glad that you have joined us here on the end.digital. And we want to be able to share as much information with you as we can. We only have a short time each evening to share a Bible study with you. But we know that there are so many of you that would like to know so much more about these subjects. And because of that, I've written a special Bible study course on prophecy. It's called The Prophetic Code. And we're going to make this available to you here in Australia entirely for free. And so if you would like to do the Prophetic Code Bible Study course through the Discovery Center entirely for free, then simply text Prophetic Code to the number that is on your screen right now. And so once again, if you'd like to do my Bible Study course, which is called the Prophetic Code, then simply text the Prophetic Code to the number you see on your screen right now. We will get in contact with you and we will make sure that you're able to do that important series of Bible studies. You've been listening to The End. For more information about this program or any of this show's free offers, visit www.theend.digital.